Our passage this morning speaks of the religious moralists who exploited spiritual God-given things for their own benefit. Using the spiritual things they possess and using even their God-given position in the world, not for God's glory, but for their own glory. And what's worse, they said, because of our position, we think we are beyond God's judgment. But our passage today reminds them and reminds us that, friends, no one is beyond God's judgment. Mere religiosity leads to condemnation eternally. Mere religiosity leads to condemnation eternally. That's kind of our big point for today. Mere religiosity leads to condemnation eternally. Please join with me in turning to your Bibles to Romans chapter 2. And we are in verses 12 to 20. Bibles there in front of you can be found on page 940. 940 if you're using one of the black Bibles there in front of you. Uh, We continue our series of the book of Romans today. Be in Romans four sermons if you count today's and here in the letter of romans it was written in the mid 80 mid 50s ad uh, by a man named the apostle paul charged by jesus christ to lay the foundation of the church and he's writing to christians in rome and rome was a very cosmopolitan city much like los angeles uh, would be very multicultural very multi-ethnic so as he writes the letter to the romans he's writing both to gentiles that is non-jews Uh, and also to Jews, right? Because both Jews and Gentiles were in the city of Rome. I mean, they had gotten kicked out for a little while, but then they had returned, and uh, that's the situation he's writing to here. One of the main reasons why he wrote to these Christians was to enlist support in taking the message of salvation in Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth where no one had before. And we see that in chapter 15 of the book of Romans where Paul's saying, look, I want to genuinely come see you, I am going to come see you. I also want to go to Spain to take the gospel there. Why is that? Because no one had ever preached the gospel in Spain before. So this is very much a partnership letter. So because Paul is Paul, because he is an apostle, he lays the foundation of the church of Jesus Christ. He loves the church. And because this is a partnership letter, he seeks to clarify what they partner in. That's very much of what Romans is about. He's clarifying what they partner in. He wants them to be helped by this. And they partner in the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you look over there in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, you see here, this is like the highlight verses of the whole entire book of Romans. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, which means good news if you're new to Christianity. Gospel just means good news. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. If you want a one-word summary of Romans, it is gospel, which is good news. So in terms of the big picture here, uh, if you look in your bulletin, you'll see a useful outline there uh, for the book of Romans. It's very brief right here. This is by a guy named D.A. Carson. I found this really useful. And the outline just basically it communicates the fact that the whole entire book summarizes or deals with the gospel. You see there we have the first section, the introduction. We have the gospel as the righteousness of God by faith. That's the section we're in. And then you have the gospel as the power of God for salvation. Then you have the gospel and Israel, that is the people of God. And then you have there the gospel and the transformation of life. And then you have the final conclusion as Paul says goodbye and sends his greeting to the Christians there in Rome. 
So as you, as I hope you guys are going to be reading through the book of Romans uh, next week, you see there on the back of your bulletin, I'm going to be touching on chapter 3 next week. So I hope you're just reading along here with this right in front of you as you read. It'll give you a good uh, understanding, big picture understanding of what the book is about there. <clears throat> so again, we find ourselves in the second section of that outline, the gospel as the righteousness of God by faith. But in order for Paul to tell us uh, how we can saved, right, through the gospel, he reminds us why we need salvation in the first place. So while 16 and 17 in chapter 1 are sort of the theme verses, you see here why we need the righteousness of God that saves us. Look there at 118. He sort of backs up and begins telling the story for why we need salvation in the first place. He says there are four. The reason is, let me explain, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and against all unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth he goes on to say that all people gentiles all people including jews stand condemned before god without excuse and here let me just back up a little bit this this section that we're looking at today it really has its eyes on the moralists okay the religious jews who rejected Jesus Christ. So that's who we're getting at here, the moralists, the, the, the religious, which is why we have the question, why does religiosity still lead to condemnation eternally? And we're going to answer that question. Here's answer number one. Why does religiosity still lead to condemnation eternally? Answer number one, because God is not partial to the religious. He is not partial to religiosity or spirituality. All people are under the condemnation of God and will be judged. Look, God's impartiality is what we ended on last time. Just look there at 2.6. You see there, this is what we preached on last time, at least when we were in the book of Romans. It says there, he will render to each one according to his works. He's looking at works. And then he goes down there at verse 11. Look there, chapter 2, verse 11. He owes no partiality. So that same principle that undergirded the previous section also undergirds our current section. The reason why Paul had to say this was because the religious Jews who rejected Jesus thought that somehow they possessed partiality with God because they were religious. They knew that they were God's chosen people, right? So they they, they had a position in the world. They knew that they were God's chosen people. Out of everyone on earth, God had chosen, all by his divine grace, to draw near to their forefather, that is Abraham. You can read about this in Genesis if we wanted. And God drew near to Abraham, giving him eternal, never-failing promises that from him would come a people, a multitude, a nation, and that this people would go on and inherit a land flowing with milk and honey, and that Abraham's offspring would be a blessing to the nations. Those are the eternal, never-failing promises that were given to Abraham and to his offspring. They were God's chosen people. They actually had a position, and that's what they thought led to partiality. That's one thing, at least. Another thing... Not only did they enjoy a position in the world, but they also possessed God's revelation. They possessed God's revelation. So as you guys, if you're familiar with the Bible, you know that God drew his people out of Egypt when they were under. He forms them together as a nation. And and then at Mount Sinai, he gives them the law that is divine revelation. The law of Moses. And friends, this is real privilege here. God's chosen people led by the wisdom of heaven. 
And so you can imagine them looking over at the Gentiles, those non-Jews, and really just kind of heaping condemnation on them, which is what they do, in, as uh, Paul relates in chapter 2. Uh, but these God-given privileges can be summed up in one word or action, that is circumcision. Now, if you're visiting with us and you're not familiar with the Bible, you might be thinking like, whoa, where is the preacher going with today? Well, friends, you, you remember what I, meant, what I mentioned about uh, Abraham uh, as God drew near to him and gave him promises that from him would come a nation. Well, as God was entering into a covenant promises with Abraham, he wanted Abraham to have a sign that showed that he was entering into the covenant as well. And friends, that sign is circumcision. Circumcision signified that Abraham and all of his male offspring were entering into the covenant with God. Circumcision testified that they were a people separated from the world. You know, if you're thinking about you have circumcision, you have being cut off from the world. I think it's pretty plain. You know, down and they think, yes, we are the set apart people for God. To be circumcised was to declare people of God. To be circumcised was to place yourself underneath God's law. Go through this passage today, you see that the language of law and circumcision is all over the place today. So when you hear the words like law and circumcision, these are like the badges of honor that the Jews held up, that they thought in their sin guaranteed God's partiality. Friends, before we go any further, right, okay, this, we're dealing with customs that aren't required for salvation at all today, so we might be thinking like, what in the world does that have to do with me? We have that even though we might not boast in possessing the law or in circumcision, at least as I've, I've not seen anybody boast in circumcision, those who go by the name Christian tend to think that we too have our own badges of religious honor that gain us God's partiality, don't we? Just think about the that people associate with getting saved. You know, I got saved when I, and then you can fill in the blank. So for a long time, I thought I got saved when I prayed a prayer. I, for a while, I thought, well, gosh, you know, I prayed a prayer when I was six years old to accept Jesus into my heart. My mother, I remember it like yesterday, she regularly would lead me in uh, reading, you know, these daily devotionals when she would put me to bed, um, and then she would pray for me. And one time when I was six years old, she said, Jeremy, you are a sinner. I'm sure she had plenty of opportunities to tell me that, but I remember it like it was yesterday. She told me that, Jeremy, you are a sinner, but guess what? Jesus can forgive you for your sins if you cry out to him for salvation. Basically, that's what she said. And she led me in this prayer. And I thought, you know, gosh, this prayer, I got saved because I accept Jesus into my heart. But friends, if you knew me when I was 12, 13, 14, and you looked at my life, you would know without a shadow of a doubt that I did not care about God. Why is that? Because I didn't care about me viewing pornography. I felt no guilt or remorse for any of that. I didn't feel any guilt or remorse for stealing. I felt zero guilt or remorse for cussing. How does a child of God live in those things and claim fellowship with the light? You don't. John, for example, says in the book of 1 John, I prayed a prayer I got saved but was not saved. That's a badge of religious honor that many people wear on their chest, so to speak. That, and therefore, I think I gained God's partiality, even though I wasn't saved. Another thing here that we might uh, associate with this religious badge of honor or this badge of religious honor is responding to an altar call. That's why, you know, we, here we don't do it. But you might be familiar with the practice in other churches where the preacher at the end of the service might call people to come down forward or raise a hand. And, and sometimes, you know, sometimes these sort of 
Uh, altar call responses might be useful, like Charles Spurgeon, he used to come forward and sit. But afterwards, he would say, look, I want you to meet with me, and then we're going to talk, and we're going to see if you really are a Christian, and we're going to evaluate fruit in your life, right? That's one thing. But have these altar calls where they say, yes, I see that hand. Thank you for that. And that equate, that's equated with salvation. I see your hand, you're saved. I see your hand, you're saved. Come on down here. Let's pray a prayer to accept Jesus in your life, and therefore you're saved. And I have met people who have said, I am saved because I walked the aisle. But if you look at their life, they have zero intention of loving Jesus, and they know it. One of my own relatives is this, does this. She says that she uh, responded in a prayer, but in conversation, it's very clear. She has zero intention of really pleasing Jesus according to his word. You know, so that's one religious badge that we wear. I responded to an altar call. I prayed a prayer. Or even I got baptized. Many people oftentimes, they get baptized because of whatever pressures might be upon them by their parents or even their church. But really, they are not saved. And other badges of honor could be acts of Christian service, for example. I started leading music in the church when I was 12 years old and was not saved. You can see how easy it is for a preteen, a preteen to think, gosh, you know what? I really do have God's partiality because well, I hear people praising me for my Christian service, for my leadership. They say, thank you for your sacrifice, for helping us lead the people of God in the worship of God, even though they didn't know you God. So even our Christian service can be a badge of religious honor. I must be doing something right. In my religiosity, in my spirituality, I must be pleasing God and therefore am free from his judgment. And then you can think of church attendance, right? Some of you visitors may have woke up this morning after having last night looked in the mirror and felt so nasty. Maybe you woke up this morning and felt nasty, maybe because of your own sin. And so in your sin and in your guilt and your shame, you say, gosh, you know what? I should go to church to gather with God's people because that'll make me feel better. But really, you have no real intention of changing your life or stopping your sin. But in your mind, doing Christian things for a couple hours makes you feel pretty good. You know, that we're in good with Jesus Christ. These are, there are so many different badges of religious honor that we think uh, that we uh, might confuse with living a life that truly worships and honors Jesus Christ. Well, friends, our passage today, Paul repeatedly chops any claim to God's partiality. As Paul begins with, as he has his aims, his sights set on the Jews, the religious Jews who rejected Jesus, he goes after them and says, look, possession of the law does not equal God's partiality. Remember, that's one thing that they thought that they earned God's partiality because they possessed the law. And we're going to look here. Look at verse 12. Finally, we get to our passage today. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. So again, he says to the self-righteous Jews, God judges those with and without the So you Jews who are saying, we have the law. He says, what are you talking about? God's going to judge you and the folks who don't have the law. Verse 12, God will judge the Gentiles in their sin. The Gentiles are those who don't have the law officially. And then in verse 13, he says, look, you Jews too, 
Even though you sin under law, you too will be judged. God's going to judge the Jews and the Gentiles. And here is the principle, verse 12. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Again, the Jew, the righteous Jew will say, I have the law. I obey the law, at least in circumcision. And so and they think, you Gentile, you know, you don't have this stuff. And so therefore you will be judged and we won't be judged. That really was the attitude then. Even though we sin, we have pardon. And they were sort of using their position to fuel their self-righteousness. Well, friends, the problem wasn't in the hearing, right? They possessed the law. They heard the law. The problem was in their doing. He says, look, you can possess the law. You can hear the law, but that doesn't make you righteous. Just consider your doing. Now, hold on one second there. A lot of you good Protestants... Uh, who believe in justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, this may not be sitting well with you right now. Is he talking about salvation by works? Look, you just obey, and then you will be saved. Well, friends, let me just say, you don't want to freeze frame Paul's argument right here. You don't want to read, read that and then close the Bible and says, yeah, I understand it all. It would be like, for those of you who are old enough, you know, maybe you, you, you saw the movie Chariots of Fire and the dude falls over, right? And it would be as tragic to turn off the television and say, yes, I know the life of that man. He was a Christian. Uh, and there's a, a good biography on the man of, uh, who, uh, that the movie Chariots of Fire, that's what, the, that's what I'm talking about, uh, portrays. Right? The guy was a Christian. So it would be tragic to say, I'm going to turn off the television. Oh, it stinks. The movie's so horrible. It's so tragic. The guy falls over and he never wins the race. Or saying something like, yeah, I, I know the story of Superman. He crash lands on planet Earth in a spaceship, and I'm going to turn it off. And, oh, that story is so bad. Right? That would be, this, it would be more tra- tragic to sort of close the Bible and think, yes, the Bible does teach salvation by works. But it doesn't. We want to let Paul's argument play on here. He is in the middle of presenting the case that no one is righteous. He says, look, go, the, the God's impartiality according to his own standard of righteousness is true. God will render each one according to their works. He shows no partiality. Justification uh, could be possible if there was complete obedience to the law. But friends, he's in the process of saying no one can do it. Not the Gentiles. They stand without excuse before God. He says not self-righteous Jews can obey the law completely. And so therefore, he's in the process here of getting to Jesus Christ the revelation of the saving righteousness of God in Jesus Christ, which we already talked about in uh, Romans chapter 1, 16 and 17. So friends, the Bible does not teach that all sinners need to do to be saved is to do enough good. We are not saved by our works. So going back to the problem here, going back to the problem of the doing, right? this would have pricked the Jews in their pride. They claim proudly against those sinners, you know, we have the law of Moses. But God says it's not about possessing the law. It's not about hearing the law. You can hear it all you want to, but have you done all of it? And he sounds a lot like James, doesn't he? Break one command, you break them all. Another prick to Jewish pride, to those who boast in the possession of law, comes in verses 14 and 16. And he says, I'm going to read it eventually, but he says, well, you Jews who put so much stock in possession of the law, the Gentiles have a law too, you know. That's the argument here. The Gentiles have a law too. Let's look at 14 to 16. 
For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. He says the Gentiles possess a law as well. It isn't a law of Moses, but they understand something of the moral norms of the law, and they even occasionally obey it. So again, he's lowering the pride of the Jews, and he's putting them on the same plane as the Gentiles, and that would have been a prick to their pride. You can see how this cuts away, right? They too have a work of the law written on their hearts. They too, it says, their conscience bears witness to it. Even though they don't have the law there in 14, they by nature do what the law is. And even they are a law unto themselves. Now, he's not saying... He's just saying that these non-Christians understand the moral norms of the law in general. This is called God's common grace. Or, or we could say this is God's common grace to common man. They're not saved. They just understand some degree of right and wrong. So we can, for example know yourself not to be a Christian, we welcome you here. Uh, According to the Bible, God says that he gives you grace. He lets you live, uh, you know, and that's God's common grace. He also has given you this ability to know something of the moral norms of the law. So, for example, God's grace to common man, for example, in in general, one example, in general, uh, you know, men know that it's not good to murder each other. Praise God for God's common grace, right? Another example, in general, the peoples of the world know it's not good to steal each other's children. That's God's common grace. That's evidence. They know something of God's moral law. We know, most people in the world know that it's not good to hold up banks at gunpoint and take other people's money for themselves. In God's common grace, most people know that caring for their children is really a good thing. Uh, So, so, you know, you might not have ever known of the Ten Commandments. You may know nothing about Christianity But yet, you know something of this law in nature that says there is a right and wrong. This is all by God's common grace, also referred to a natural law. You see it even in man's conscience in verse 15 there. He mentions that their conscience uh, will bear witness. Their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on the day when, according to my gospel, God judges you even have a conscience everybody has a conscience that is the ability to discern right from wrong now paul doesn't say that every conscience is always accurate he's saying that you have an ability a god-given ability he doesn't say that every conscience is always accurate they are not he doesn't say that every conscience is informed appropriately they are not consciences can be misinformed they can even be hardened and they can be seared or desensitized and things like this. He just says that, look, in general, man has this ability to determine, to know. Now, some might read verse 15 and see that the conscience excuses or accuses and think, hey, all I need is is my conscience. I don't even need Jesus. I don't even need to obey the Bible, right? Well, friends, that would be incorrect. According to the word of God, the conscience is to be informed by God's word. And so more and more, as we know God's word, we are able to be informed to know what God thinks is uh, right or wrong. And, you know, some people think that all they need is a conscience because they think there, there in 15, that the conscience bears witness, their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse. 
So great, all I need is my conscience and then I'll be directed. That's not what he's saying. He's saying the vast majority of times, even for the Gentiles, their conscience accuses. They'll stand before God and God will judge. Ultimately, what's interesting here in a discussion about the fulfillment of the law, he says he'll judge the secrets of men's hearts. He says overwhelmingly, their thoughts will, their conscience will accuse them. The or even, or even is kind of like, yeah, sure, occasionally, sometimes. Or even they will excuse them, but vast majority they will be accused. Now, it would be a lot of fun to spend more time teaching on natural law and the conscience. But Paul's main point here is to rebuke once again. He's rebuking the moralistic Jews who claim privilege based on the possession of the law. That's what he's doing there. Verse 12 and 13. Here without the law. And under the law will be judged by the law, for it is not the hearers of the law that are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. You see where the passage returns? It returns actually back to the impartiality of God because he is righteous in judgment. Verse 16 there. This is the judgment that leads to eternal condemnation. Is on that day God will judge the secrets of men. So he's telling the self-righteous Jews, look, you will be judged. The Gentiles will be judged. You have a law, even though you claim to have a law, they too will be judged. He's saying, look, everyone's going to be judged by God's righteousness. He's impartial. This is why religiosity leads to condemnation eternally. That's answer number one. Answer number two to the question, mere religiosity lead to condemnation eternally. Answer number two is because the religiosity does not clear actual guilt. Religiosity does not clear actual guilt. In actuality, the very fact that the Jews possessed the law and heard the law increases their guilt, doesn't it? And it increases guilt's intensity, right? So the more revelation you have, the more you'll be held accountable for. And so since chapter 2, he's saying, look, the Jews are guilty because of their own sins. Paul says that, look, you guys might judge those Gentiles over there for certain things, but you guys are guilty of the same exact things. And in 17 to 40, 24, our next section here, we see the irony in the Jews' hypocrisy. Because the very law they boast in condemns them. You see the irony in the Jews' hypocrisy because the very law they boast in actually condemns them, and their boasting increases their condemnation. What makes, their boasting in, what makes their boasting in their privilege ironic is the Jews had God-given privileges. So look at 17 to 18. Now we're going to look at real God-given privileges that ultimately are going to heap more condemnation upon them. You look there at 17. But you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God. You know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law. He goes on, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having the law and the embodiment of knowledge and truth, when you teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. So again, we're looking at God, real God-given privileges that the Jews were boasting in. 
right? They have the law. Look at 17. They have the law, which is something to be relied on. They know God's will. They can approve of what is excellent because they have divine revelation. Are legitimate privileges given to them by God's design. The law, Paul says, is the gift of God. And he says there, Paul also says elsewhere in his writings that boasting in God is good, right? These are if you think about the and that uh, being a guide to the blind, a light to the nations, instructors, teachers given that they had the embodiment and knowledge of the truth. All of that, friends, is based in the Old Testament. It was a good thing that they were to be a guide to the blind. And we as a church know this too, don't we? We understand where Israel's position was. In the Old Testament, it says that they were to be the light to the Gentiles. Well, friends, today, in today's church, we too are to be a light to the whole entire world. We are glory. We hold out the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our holiness reflects the character of God, right? So we understand what he's talking about here. The irony is that their pride and confidence in their God-given privileges increased their guilt and condemnation. They boasted in their possession of the law, but they didn't care to fulfill the law. They boasted in their part, being a light to those in darkness, but didn't care to fulfill their part. It's like a police officer, a peace officer, who cares more that he is a peace officer than his responsibility to keep the peace. It's a religious, a spiritual sham undergirded by hypocrisy. So he says, you preach against stealing, but you steal yourself. You teach against adultery, but you yourselves are an adulterer. Verse 22, look there. You abhor idols, you stay away from them, but yet you use them to make a profit. So robbing temples probably has something to do with taking idols from pagan temples and then making money off them somehow truth is that mere possession or hearing the law and being assigned the part does not clear actual guilt before God. In fact, it increases it. Okay, so that's a lot of history. Let's look at application. And I hope even now you're letting the Jews from the first century be your examples if you say that you're a Christian. We've already noted that self-righteousness is based in their possession of the law. We have the law. But also note that the Jews who rejected Jesus derived some sort of self-righteousness from their position in ministry. The Jews who rejected Jesus once again derived some sort of self-righteousness from their position in ministry. And sadly, because of their self-righteousness, even though they possessed a ministry, they could never rightly fulfill it. Never. They had a ministry of service, right? A light to the world. So do. We are to be a light to the world. The church displays God's glory again. The self-righteous Jews weren't after the glory of God in his plan for them to be a light to the nations, were they? They were after their glory in God's plan for them to be a light to the nations. It was not about God displaying his glory among the nations. It was about them being light over and against the nations. It's almost like they hijacked their position of ministry for their own glory. You see how if you, friend, are using your ministry for your own glory, you too have a ministry idolatry? And friends, you know you have a ministry idolatry if ministry positions give you some sort of pride, some sort of self-validation, some sort of significance. But church... 
ministry idolatry just leaves you committed to a position, doesn't it? Not the person of God. It leaves you committed to a position, not the person of God. Now, friends, we might all struggle with this. We all struggle with pride, no doubt. But, friends, if left unchecked, if left unconfessed and unworked through, you know that loving the position because it fuels your glory actually works against the mission of God? This is what these Jews spoken of here were doing in Romans chapter 2. They were unknowingly, at best, subverting the mission of God. Thus, you look at their condemnation in verse 23. You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking law. For it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the nations, the Gentiles, because of you. So by quoting this Old Testament passage, most likely from Isaiah 52.5, Paul makes clear that they are wayward. It's like they are in exile. And judgment is coming lesson for us they possess the promises of god well friends so do we they possess and hear the law of god well friends we have god's word they have a ministry position to the nations but yet they go but actually they go about their mission somehow causing the name of god to be blasphemed so friends what happens if you find yourself wrestling with ministry idolatry glorying in the position possession of a position as opposed to glorying in the person of Christ. Well, what do you do, friends? You confess your sin. You should ask for forgiveness. Friends, isn't it good news that he is used to dealing with people who, unfortunately, in their sin, wrestle God for their own glory. He's used to since Genesis 3, as God created all people to be, as you know, in relationship with him. But they dishonor God. They have no thanks. They give no honor to him. And Acknowledging him as king, they make their own kingdoms. And so they sin against God, rejecting his authority and set up their own kingdoms. That's the ministry idolatry, isn't it? It's taking the good things of God that he's given the church and using them to boost our own egos and our own pride. Ministry idolatry, it distracts us from the main issue. But friends, those things are going to heap condemnation on you if you too do not repent. You might stand up here and sing the praises of God because everybody's looking at me, but all those empty words just will come back to lay upon you the weight of your own hypocrisy. You might even stand up here and preach preach the word of God. Give the word of God and God may even still use it, but you might do it because everybody's looking at you. But friends, all the empty words that you might even stand up here and say and all the empty words you read will just come back upon you and you will be judged with greater weight. Friends, it isn't only the, these non-Christian Jews who need and to feel this weight. It's us too, 21st century Christians too. Every single day we need to be reminded of gospel truths so that we can once again see the beauty of the revelation of the saving righteousness of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's in seeing God's grace in Christ that helps us then approach our ministry positions with an attitude of genuine Christ-like service, of genuine Christ-like love, right? So as Christians, right, we've been forgiven. That's gospel truth here. If we understand the weight of God's wrath revealed against all ungodliness of mankind, we're, we're left nowhere to go. We can't stand here and say, yes, well, I preach the gospel all the time. I do youth ministry. I do stuff here. I'm an usher here. Because it doesn't clear guilt. But if you understand that breaking one law against a righteous God 
will earn you just condemnation in hell because what that's doing is shoving a holy God aside and saying, I am king. If you understand that, friends, you're left nowhere to go except to God. Crying out to him for the grace and mercy that he has revealed by his, by his grace. And when you understand the gospel, right, you're going to embrace the end of glorifying Christ and you're going to love and ministry position, which is really just an evidence of God's grace, and then you'll have genuine service and genuine love. What this looks like, it looks like ushers, right? Ushers in the back. You love the end of glorifying Christ because you yourself saved, and therefore you are eager to stand there week after week, greeting people joyfully with the love of Christ, welcoming needy sinners to our gathering who may have come to hear about free and full salvation because they are desperate. This looks like Sunday school, Sunday school workers loving the glory of Christ because where once you hated this stuff, but then all of a sudden you love it. This looks like Sunday school workers selflessly taking care of little souls for an hour or two, changing the diapers of babies who are wholly dependent on others just as we human beings are dependent on God. And then maybe teaching five-year-old kids the eternal truths of God, praying and trusting that God would be gracious to save them just as he has been gracious to save you. This looks like pastors and teachers, preachers and teachers, loving the glory of Christ as fellow sinners and therefore holding out the message that brings people to salvation in Jesus Christ, holding out the gospel of Jesus Christ to fellow sinners as opposed to preaching for your own glory. This is seeing the end, loving the end, the glory of God through Jesus Christ. It's that that helps us understand our positions rightly. The Jews, they were like, yes, we do ministry. You guys are all sinners. We are the light to the Gentiles. This is what we are. They're, they're, they're boasting in their position as opposed to seeing that God has brought them in to the people of God and granted them a wonderful ministry of reconciliation. Friends, what is it that can help destroy pride in privilege? It is going back to the gospel every single day. What else cultivate that humility that's required for ushering, for children's ministry, for music, for preaching, than to come and see that the weight of guilt has earned us eternal condemnation and the judgment of God? Where else are you going to go for You're not going to go to the stuff we do, but to God who grants salvation. Why does mere religiosity lead to condemnation eternally? Answer number one, because religiosity does not gain God's partiality. Answer number two, Paul gives, because religiosity does not clear actual guilt. Answer number three, because religiosity reflects your commitment to a practice, not the person of Christ. We've, we've, large, we've talked a lot about that already in the application there to point number two, but we're going to look at it a little bit more. Answer number three, because religiosity reflects your commitment to a practice, not the person of Christ. The non-Christian Jews wholeheartedly thought that they were of the people of God. They were the circumcision. This is the way circumcision was used to declare to all the people that they were of the people of God and that they had the Lord over them. 
But despite all they did in the name of God, despite whatever ministry they had, despite uh, whatever God had charged them to do, because of their unrighteousness as seen in their self-righteousness, circumcised is all they ever were. Ouch! Committed to a practice, but not the person of Christ. Committed to God. Or the, the law of God, but not the God who gave them the law. They were committed really to their own righteousness, not to the righteousness of God. You look there in 25 to 27. You see here, Paul once again brings us back to the principle of God's impartiality. Look there. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And he who is physically uncircumcised but who keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is the matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man but from God. What does he mean when he says that circumcision becomes uncircumcision and uncircumcision will be regarded as circumcision? He's saying these things, he's saying that in relation to these things, he's flipping the Jewish, the notion of Jewish entitlement right on his head. The, the word circumcision and the practice kind of symbolized everything that they took pride in. And he says, look, you who think you are the people of God, you will not be considered the people of God because you're not going to obey the whole law. And he says, they, those people that you judge, he says, they, the Gentiles, who think they are not pe the people that you think are not the people of become the people of God if they keep the law. No matter if the Jews obey in circumcision, if they didn't keep the law, God would regard them as spiritual Gentiles. They are outside of the people of God. They are outside of the blessing as the Jews thought. But those who are ethnically and culturally outside the people of God, if they God will regard them as part of the people of God. And that's clear there in verse 7. Friends, this shows us who the true people of God are. You look there at 29, 28 and 29 once again. No one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise, or that's the end time praise when they stand before God on Judgment Day, his praise is not from man, but from God. To the Jews, Paul says, you know who a real Jew is, guys? You know who has been given the promises of Abraham? Who will be a blessing to the world? It's not an ethnic people based on physical lineage or ethnic heritage. It's not those who are physically circumcised merely. It's those who are circumcised of the heart. Paul goes to great lengths to reiterate and clarify what he means to those who boast in outward circumcision. He says it is not outward, but inward. You see there? It is a matter of the heart. It's inward. It's a heart thing, not an not a appendage thing. He says here, here we should think very much of the Spirit's work prophesied in the Old Testament. This is why Paul says it is a work of the Spirit. Okay, so go ahead and turn back to the book of Ezekiel. Uh, turn to the book of Ezekiel. If you basically open your Bible to the middle, you'll basically be in Isaiah. But uh, if you turn right a few books, you'll get to Ezekiel. And we're in chapter 36. 
So Paul here, why does he bring up this work of the Spirit thing? Well, Ezekiel 36, 26 prophesies of a day when God would do something new in Jesus Christ. This is what he says, 36, 26. He says, and I... Now, keep in mind here, they are in exile. This is not good. They're being judged for their sin. And here God says, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove your heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my spirit. Careful to obey all my rules. Look, there, there it summarizes what he's talking about in the Old Testament here, this work of the Spirit when God would do something new, take out a stony heart and put in a heart of flesh, put in the Spirit and cause them, it says, obey their law. And then he clarifies further back in Romans, he said it's not by the letter of the law. The letter never saved, but the intention of the letter was to lead them. To... The law was never meant to save. The law by God's design was meant to expose sin and lead us to Jesus Christ. This is clear from Galatians chapter 3 as well. You might be asking, why then the physical sign of the Old Testament? It was to point to their spiritual need. It was still a command, it was still a sign, and it indeed marked off the people of God physically. But even in the Old Testament, the physical reality pointed to their foundational need of circumcision of the heart. God knew that the people would struggle. So he spoke regularly of the day when he would, as Deuteronomy 30, verse 6 says, circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring. So that, here's the purpose, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. And him doing that would guarantee a heart dedicated to God cause you to obey my statutes so that you will love the Lord your God. Friends, you see how that's good news? You see how that's good news not only for the Gentiles, but then also for the self-righteous Jew, who all of us stand before a righteous God and his wrath is being revealed against all of this unrighteousness is because that very God, whose standard is eternal, offers salvation in Jesus Christ. Where else are we going to go but to him who saves? To the non-Christian, I hope you see this here and know that becoming part of the people of God does not have to do with religiosity. So yes, do you come in here maybe and you see Christian people doing Christian things? Yes, well, you, you do. And those things are good. Christian morals based in Jesus Christ and the cross and his resurrection are all good. Services do not get you partiality with God. Because it cannot get you partiality with God. According to God, that's too easy. But we perfect standard of God's righteousness. And as sinners, we can never stand before God, as the word says with this rhetorical question, if God kept a record of wrongs, who could stand? Feel the weight of God's sovereign standard of righteousness against you. But remember God's intention. His sovereign standard is there to expose your guilt and drive you to God's sovereign work of revealing His Son to save us. Praise God then for the law. Praise God for His righteous standard. That's why Paul can say the law is a good thing. It's supposed to drive us to God, pleading that He would change our hearts and deliver us through the power of the Spirit as the Spirit regenerates us. The very Spirit of Christ changes our hearts, and then we begin to love the Lord our God. Friends, repent of your sin 
and believe on Jesus Christ. All of the judgment that you have earned for yourself rightly, the wrath that you have earned for yourself is placed upon Jesus Christ. God sent Jesus. He knew what he was doing. He sent Jesus to live the righteous life that you could not, to bear the righteous punishment that you deserve, to bear the wrath that you deserve. And so on the cross, as he died, the Father laid upon him the weight of sin and the wrath that you deserved. Three days later, he got up from the grave saying, payment has been paid in full. Life anew can be had. Forgiveness can be given to those who repent of their sins and believe on him. And there can be reconciliation, like genuine restoration with your very maker if you would turn from your sin and believe on him. To conclude, no religiosity or morality can win the part and convince God to abandon his own character of righteousness. What can we do to convince God to get him to abandon his standard of judgment, which is his... Mere religiosity does not gain God's partiality, no matter what you do. Mere religiosity can never clear the guilt that you have earned for yourself. And mere religiosity, all it does, friend, is commit you to a practice and not the person. And remember, this whole thing, in light of Romans, yes, we talk about guilt. We talk about standing in front of a judge. We talk about forensic declaration of righteousness, which is justification. But most importantly, you don't want to lose the fact that this is a personal relationship, which is why later on, Romans, Paul's going to talk about adoption and a father and a children. We're going to talk about deliverance. We talk about uh, God coming to deliver people, to take them as if they were his own. Friends, underneath The language of justification and forgiveness stands a God, your very own man. And you stand against him in your sin. To be saved, what we need is the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord, with all this talk of judgment, pray, Lord, that we would always know the love of God. As we know, your word says that because you loved us, you sent your Son. Because you loved the world, even in its badness. Because you loved sinners, you sent your Son to die on the cross to win forgiveness and reconciliation for everyone who would repent of their sins and believe. Father, we pray that we wouldn't stop the story here and just close the book here, but Lord, that we would keep on reading that nothing, not even our very own sin, can stop us and separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus who died on the cross for the sins of all who would turn. Lord, we recognize that there is such great grace in you as a father and as a judge to grant reconciliation and free who only stand condemned. Lord, why would you do that? Certainly, as this, your word teaches us, it is not because of our own righteousness. It is not because we are so special compared to the rest of the world 
but only because of your sovereign grace to save. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have grace so, so, so much greater than our sin. In your name we pray, amen.